Hello and welcome back everyone. Welcome again to The Meeting Room with me, Jed Thurgettle, joined yet again by the fantastic Tim and me here. Hello guys, how you doing? Hey guys. Hello Jed, afternoon awesome. everybody, how you doing? Not too bad at all. Now we are joined by another very special guest, um, someone called Tav Ahmad. Hello there, how are you doing? Hello there, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to speak today. No, thank you for, for coming on. I think it's going to be a fantastic podcast we've got uh, lined up covering all sorts. But I'm doing too much talking here. Tab, if you could please give us a brief introduction about yourself, who you are, what you've done in the past and your your current, well, the, the current company, Employability. Sure, thanks. Um, so I'm Tab Ahmed. I'm the founder and CEO of Employability, which I set up in 2014. So a few years ago now, and um, really the main purpose of employability was to, uh, I guess I'd noticed a gap in the market between support available to really talented, disabled, neurodiverse uh, students with or mental health conditions um, between the support they were getting at university and the, then the transition into employment. And it just felt like such a shame that bright young people uh, who are incredibly smart we're going to university, getting great education, doing really well, and then somehow that wasn't translating into the workplace. They weren't applying for the sorts of organizations they should be applying to, uh, or they were applying, but they were falling through the process because there were inherent barriers in place. And so, and then on the flip side, it meant to me that companies were missing out on some really great talent, and there was a bit of a mismatch. So I felt there was a real space for providing support to the students to enable them to get the careers that they deserve and really to the companies to help them to make sure that they're recruiting from the widest talent pool out there um, and hence employability. So um, that was uh, many years ago, as I mentioned. Um, and since then, uh, we have supported 13,000 students into employment, students with neurodiverse conditions or disabilities or mental health conditions, which we're really proud of and worked with some amazing companies who, like us, believe that diversity and inclusion is an imperative, that it's something uh, that you know, our world is diverse, inclusion is imperative, and that we really need to do things differently to make sure that uh, they're getting the best talent and that uh, people, not just students, but everybody is getting the chance to operate on a level playing field. I mean, firstly, I think thank you from society as a whole because you're doing fantastic work here and and really pushing something that well that ne needs to be mainstream now sort of uh, inclusivity for everyone. Um, now you've mentioned the term neurodiverse and neurodiversity um, a few times. Could you just give a brief overview to everyone listening of what that is or what you would perhaps define as as neuro neurodiversity? Yeah, so this is a term that I think has become um much more popular much more used over the last few years so to me neurodiversity is the idea that neurological differences like autism or adhd or uh, dyspraxia dyslexia tourette's are the result of normal and natural variations in the human genome um, so it covers a whole multitude of non-visible conditions for example and often conditions that either go misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. Um, 
particularly if they aren't severe. Um, and so people can get to, to university or tertiary education levels, if there's particularly if they're bright and smart with very little support. But then as they get further up the education, then the, it often gets picked up at university, that in fact, there are some adjustments, there are some accommodations that can be made to enable people to, uh, to perform to the best of their ability. And so neurodiversity is really about these neurological differences and, and understanding that actually it, this is a normal variation um, amongst society. Um, now, at what point did you actually, well, at what point and perhaps why did you take an interest in uh, neurodiversity and, and the, I, I guess, the career path that you're on now? So, so the definition of disability under the Equality Act 2010 is really wide. We perhaps in this country have the widest definition of that of any European country um, and, and that encompasses physical disabilities but also hidden disabilities so things like neurodiverse conditions and often these are things that people don't typically associate as a disability. People often think of disabilities being something physical, something very visible. Um, when I run training sessions with employers and <clears throat> I say to them okay what's the first thing that comes into your head when you think of disability and a lot of people say something in a wheelchair. But in fact, 70% of disabilities are non-visible. Only 5% of people with a disability are in a wheelchair. So it's just quite interesting that people's view of disability is something physical, something visible. Neurodiversity, as I mentioned, covers a whole host of non-visible conditions. And so I think, I think part of it really is the broader, well, the definition of disability is much wider than people think in which neurodiversity is included. But also I think, why, so why, why do I have a particular interest? Um, uh, I think why and how people think differently has always been a fascination of mine. Um, my father was on the autistic spectrum as are others amongst my family and friends. Um, and you know, I have friends who've got children with ADHD or dyslexia, I know people personally with those conditions. So. I spent a lot of time reading about how people are impacted, um, the challenges this presents in a society where we expect people to behave within preconceived and expected norms. And it seemed to me that this didn't always have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. There are changes that we can embrace within ourselves as individuals and as a society to be more ex accepting and inclusive. Um, and so that everybody has the chance to be who they are, really. And what do you think, actually, in, in today's current climate, perhaps the biggest misconceptions are of people who are disabled, neurodiverse, that fall under this, this wide UK umbrella, as you've said? So as I mentioned, I think one of the misconceptions is that disability is physical, disability is visible. But also, um, I think... Often there can be a misconception that somehow people with disabilities or people with neurodiverse conditions, that somehow if they're bright and smart and clever, well, actually, it's not really a disability <laughs> um, or oh, oh, it doesn't really get in their way or uh, somehow or if it, it, it so it can be two ends of the spectrum, either sort of it's really a disability, in which case they can't be part of the normal world and ways of doing things or and they need too much support or or the flip side of that where well if they're doing so well it can't really be a hindrance can't really be a disability it can't really be that much of a challenge um so i and actually the reality is 
not that at all. The reality is that even really bright, smart people may need adjustments or accommodations to be able to perform as well as they can. And just because somebody has been facing challenges on their own or have really good coping strategies doesn't mean it's not a challenge. Doesn't mean that society doesn't need to play its part to, um, to actually be accepting. So I think, they, I, think, I think that they are sort of the challenges. So specifically, um, you know, if we're working with somebody who um, has autism, it may be things as simple as that in an interview situation, which is already a pretty stressful situation for anybody when you're going through a competitive process, it may be that somebody may not be as comfortable making eye contact, for example, with the interviewer. Now, eye contact is one of those things that we all use to, to, to make judgments. You know, is this person telling the truth? Do we like them? Do we trust them? All of these sorts of things. Uh, are they interested? Are they motivated? Uh, and you might be thinking, well, do they, do they really want to have this role? Mm, they're not making good eye contact. Maybe that means they're not that interested. Um, so the sorts of adjustments we suggest is saying, well, actually, if somebody isn't making eye contact with you or isn't making it very frequently, it's not because they might, they're not interested. It's just that they don't feel the need to do that to demonstrate to you that they are interested. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be suitable for the role, for example. I mean, that's just brilliant. You're already demonstrating sort of how people have these preconceived ideas that, that, that need to be broken down as such for, for everyone to be more understanding of everything that's going going on in the world. Um, now, before before you started in, in employment, anything like that, what course did you do at university? And do you think that this particular course equipped you with the skills, the traits that you needed to succeed in, in, in the world of business? Um, so I did accounting and economics. Um, people think that's a pretty dry course that I did. <laughs> uh, but I did accounting and economics. I know I'm talking to the management society here, but I did economics and accounting. And actually, I loved my degree. I loved it. But I think the bit of it that I particularly enjoyed, interestingly, were the sort of um, the social aspects of it. I remember doing a course called Organization Development. Uh, and actually, I love the kind of social aspects of why people behave in certain ways in companies and the impact that has. Um, and after my degree, I went on to um, join a firm as a trainee chartered accountant, actually. Um, but in the end, yeah, that wasn't what I really wanted to do. <laughs> it wasn't sort of, um, though I, you know, I really enjoyed going to companies, finding out about them, uh, learning about the business. And I saw lots of different types of companies from I know, casinos to I know, wood merchant traders, all sorts of different companies. But I, um, it wasn't, being an accountant wasn't really what I wanted to do in the end. And so I left that and I then um, moved to New York for personal reasons and actually joined a very large recruitment company and started off doing financial recruitment because I had an accountancy background finance background and I did that I was in New York for for about a year and then I moved back to London and carried on here and then and then started doing banking recruitment um, and eventually I left there to set up um, a executive search firm um, specializing in a very particular area of banking which was um, fixed income analysts and equity analysts <laughs> so um, I and I ran that for about seven years, actually. Um, 
And then we had. And the- what did you learn from this? From from your first startup, what do you think you learned? So what was interesting was people have often asked me whether training as an accountant helped me with setting up the business then and employability now. And and what I'd say is, whilst I didn't want to be an accountant, in fact, it was fantastic training. It was fantastic training for understanding uh, understanding business and understanding what's important when you're setting up a business you know understanding all that good stuff like um you know profit loss accounts and balance sheets and cash flows and all that sort of stuff um so that was it was very very good trading for that and i think i've sort of to some extent taken my knowledge of that to granted for granted um but in fact it almost certainly come from my training with a very good firm to uh, as an accountant so what I learned, I suppose, and when people have asked me, when the people have had an idea of setting up a business is you, first of all, you know, you need to have a really clear idea of what it is that you want to do, uh, what it is that you're trying to solve, what it is that you're trying to do, what gap is there in the market that you're trying to fill. Um, you have to have a very good sense of who your client base is going to be and what their need for you is going to be. Um, so I think they're the first things, and then really you have to say. So, yeah, I mentioned cash flow; that's a really important thing. You have to think about um, businesses go out of business not because they're not profitable necessarily, but quite often because they don't have the cash flow. So really planning and thinking through all of that: where's your income going to go, come from? How long are you going to be able to sustain that if you don't get any income initially? You have to plan all of that. Um, so I think they're the really important bits of setting up any small business. And then really, how much do you want to do it? You know, um, is it really something you want to do? So I think people can have a romantic notion of setting up a business. But it has to be something, one, that's going to work from a practical financial level. And then is it something you really want to do, do and invest your time in? Because it's a lot of hard work as well. Do you believe that entrepreneurship can be learned? Or do you think it's more of a genetic mindset type thing that's a really interesting question um i think there are some people who it just doesn't suit now i don't know whether that's genetic or not maybe it's just a preference maybe it's just a personality um maybe it's skills um i think there are some people who definitely aren't suited to that and i think there are some people who are better suited to that so um you know, I, this is my second business. And when I've spoken to my husband sometimes about, I mean, early on in employability, when I came, there was some amazing job that was advertised at some great company, I thought, oh, actually, I can do that. Shall I apply for that? And he said, no, because I just don't think you can work for somebody else. <laughs> so, um, so, but yeah, that's, that's me as an individual, as a personality. I, I mean, I love the challenge of running a business. Um, I like the variation. Um, I find, I find it, I find it fascinating to be able to persuade people to come on the journey with you, whether that's employees or whether that's a client or whether that's for me now in employability, whether that's a candidate. Um, and so I think that, um, I don't know if it's a genetic thing, I'm not sure about that, but uh, for me, it's definitely a preference and it's, it, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I wonder, as you were going along your journey with the first startup, did you have anyone to help guide you go along because obviously in the first startup you might not have much of an idea about how to navigate the market and that kind of thing or is it kind of just test and see how it goes along um, with your first one yeah so no not really I mean I I had been doing recruitment for a while so I understood the market I understood recruitment um I also sort of had an idea of what level 
I wanted to recruit at. Um, and so you are, yes, question earlier was, uh, is it genetic, et cetera? I, I'm not sure about that, but I, maybe it's something to do with whether you're a risk taker or not. Of course, there's always an element of risk um, involved in any new business. And, and I would say to anybody who's thinking about that, that really, you have to really consider if that's a risk you want to take on and, and whether you can take it on as well. So, um, no, there wasn't is the answer to the question, but I think I had a really good idea of the, uh, and, and the area of recruitment that I was doing was very specific. So, you know, equity analysis, fixed income, quantitative analysts, it was a very specific area. It wasn't, I was, wasn't taking a broad brush, brush approach to recruitment. Um, and so I knew that within that, specia that speciality, I could really focus in and home in on that. Now, you talked about having obviously two startups, the, the second one being employability. What, why did you leave uh, your first startup or, or did that close? And then to, to move and what, what inspired the creation of employability? What was that period between the two? Yeah, so I... Um, so I ran employability, I said, for about seven years. Um, I think in the end, it was part of the dot-com bubble, actually. It was about that okay. time. And, um, and then I, I had this idea that I wanted to do something different, but I didn't really know what. Um, I had this idea that I wanted to work in some practical way with young people, but I didn't know what. Um, and so I tried lots of different things. I was thinking, oh, should I do some sort of course? Do I want to work for a charity? I've never worked in the not-for-profit sector before. I had no idea, actually. And so I started looking around, and actually it wasn't that easy. Though I was prepared to take a massive pay cut to do this, it wasn't that easy. And in the end, I saw a role advertised to work for a charity, um, helping disabled people into employment. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because I know about recruitment. I don't know much about disability, but I know about recruitment. Um, maybe this could be something interesting. And so I ended up joining a charity and setting up, in fact, their business arm for them. And, and it was there that I noticed there was a gap in this market I was talking about earlier for students and graduates. And so the first doors I knocked on was actually the banks because that was the animal I knew, um, although it was very different contacts from my contacts. Um, and that's really how the journey beca began. But I, for me, I realized after a while that um, I was working for a sort of medium-sized charity, quite a well-known one at the time. It's not around anymore. But I, I think I found it quite difficult. It made me realize that, unfortunately, a lot of, lot of charities don't understand business. And I found that quite challenging. And in the end, I decided to leave because it wasn't really fitting with my understanding of business in terms of how that charity was being run. So I decided to leave and set up employability. Now I was in a very fortunate position because I had set up the business arm for this particular charity. And a lot of these companies that I worked with knew me pretty well. I was in a fortunate position of being able to set up employability uh, with clients who wanted to work with me and who knew me already. So I was in a very fortunate position of having clients that said right well we'll, we'll we'll work with you because we know who you are and we know what you do and we know how you're doing it um so that was perhaps easier than it might be if you're setting up a brand new business it was certainly easier when i set up them when i set up my first business was one nash you um you mentioned that you were able to get in contact with banks you already had contacts and things there i wonder 
were all the people you spoke to open to working with um, people that have some sort of disability, whether it's their kind of, uh, did they feel it was an opportunity they were open to work with? Because I know the idea of neurodiversity and actually working with um, recruiting people with some sort of disability is fairly new uh, in terms of being accepted. So was it something that you faced as a challenge or no? For sure, for sure. Yeah, so if you think back to, I'm talking about, you know, back in um, when I worked for the charity first was back in 2001. I set up employability in 2006. It was really new, actually. Disability was uh, on nobody's radar, in fact. You know, it was the poorer cousin amongst the diversity strands. And when I first started knocking on doors, so though I said I approached the banks, it was very different contacts. It wasn't existing contacts that I had. And in fact, people really didn't have an understanding of what disability meant. And it was all the challenges that we were speaking about earlier about understanding what it covers, what people can do, what people can't do, etc. There were a lot of assumptions. Um, and so it was, yes, it was really quite challenging to get it onto people's radar. Um, and so it was a journey. And we started off by um, working with some of the big investment banks. And um, initially, actually, they were sort of separate programs. The first program I ran was um, for a large bank, which was a specific program for people with disabilities. Now, we don't run those anymore because, because it's become much more the norm. There's no reason why people with disabilities can't just apply to the internship that the bank has or that any organization has. So it was quite challenging and it, it was about persuading people, it was about training people, it was about giving people understanding of what disability means. And we've come a really long way. We've come a really long way to where organizations certainly understand more about why it makes business sense to have a diverse workforce, why it makes business sense to get the best person out there, not look from a limited talent pool. But there is still a long way to go. There's still a long way to go in that journey. And for us, that next part of our journey, employability, is what we now call next generation inclusive thinking for companies, for universities, for students, for everybody that's involved in that journey. And for us, that really is about embracing it. So, you know, initially it was all about sort of, well, am I being legally compliant? You know, here with the Equality Act in the US with the ADA. And for us now, this is all about getting people to think about best practice beyond compliance. It's about taking it further. And a new term you might have heard recently is this term belonging. So, you know, first of all, it was diversity. It was diversity and inclusion. Now it's diversity, inclusion and belonging. And I think that's a really important word because that's all about the culture of a company. You can't make somebody feel as if they belong. So it's about how can we get companies to create that culture where people feel like they belong. Um, now, you, you talked about earlier on creating employability in 2006. Um, I think it'd be silly not to ask what was it like being the sort of the founder and, and ceo of a company a startup in well going through the financial crisis in the very early stages of its creation so yeah i mean it was challenging look you know not long after we set up um lehman brothers crashed <laughs> um that was yeah. that was huge that was huge and in fact they were one of our clients so it was enormous for us as well but but I think what was really interesting, because this main space that <clears throat> we were then working in was students and graduates into employment. And actually, that was an area that wasn't as impacted as other areas. And so companies were still looking 
for uh, people to join internships or graduate programs. And so I think to some extent that was somewhat protected. Of course, then, uh, as now for different reasons, my concern was, ah, does this mean that, you know, disability and diversity is going to become a nice have rather than a must have? Is, yeah. and, and the challenges that was going to pose. And, you know, I have to say, you know, six months ago, beginning of this pandemic, I had a similar thought. Um, we survived the last one. And actually, this time around, you know what? It's had very little impact. In fact, we've been busier than ever. So, um, Brilliant. So I'm very pleased about that. <laughs> I mean, that's good news for, obviously, yourself and, and everyone involved as well. And, again, moving forward socially, it's good to know that sort of uh, crises, pandemics, whatever, whatever might be um, springing up in the world doesn't actually affect people differently you know it doesn't discriminate economically as such um now from a business perspective um as a, a founder a ceo how did you approach creating a team of employees within your companies sort of what were you looking for the traits or skills that perhaps make someone stand out or, or you thought would be imperative when hiring so you know we're still a small company relatively small company but and and um something you might not know about employability is that from the get-go um uh, we don't have offices we all work from home uh, i mean that's perfect perfect for now perfect then really right now we were set up for this yeah. yes uh we all we all work from home we've done that from the beginning and the reasons were that wow it's a huge cost to have an office in central london right um so it meant we could save a lot of money doing that and at the beginning, you know, I used to be quite coy when my clients, companies asked where our offices were and um, so on. But then actually we just started being really honest about it. So actually we all work from home. One day a week, we have a team day, happens to be at my house. Um, and, um, and it works really well for us because it allows us a lot of flexibility. I have people on my team who are parents. I have people on my team who have other responsibilities or other commitments. And really, for me, as long as uh, people are delivering what they're supposed to be delivering, doing their role if it, if efficiently and effectively, I don't mind, you know, how they want to organize their day. Um, and, and what we found was actually companies started thinking that was really cool. They thought it was great. In a way, we're sort of practicing what we preach. Um, and so for us, it's worked incredibly well um and what's been really interesting in this pandemic has been what we noticed is that i know that remote working was becoming uh something that some people were doing and so on even before this but it was still sort of frowned upon and it still companies weren't always that pleased if somebody wanted to do that and though they were allowing it and look what we found overnight was that everybody could work remotely it was a possibility okay not in not in every sector but certainly in offices and so on and so we found that change can happen and it can happen pretty quickly when you put your mind to it um and i'm not sure that as a society we're ever going to go back to exactly how it was before because we've seen the alternative so that's for me that's very encouraging on a on a personal note how do you separate your work life from your home life when it's in the same location has that been a struggle for you um so for me i 
actually love working from home. Um, um, Not having to go into an office, not having to dress up when I don't have to. Um, All of those things. Um, But of course, you know, like, you know, before the pandemic, I was going to meetings and, you know, putting on the relevant attire and so on and so forth. But, um, and and I love going to meetings too. So that's that's a whole different thing. But um, I like the flexibility. Um, I have um, children and actually set up employability on my oldest child was two uh had a baby two years after setting up employability so um but carried on uh, and was able to because i could work flexibly mm. uh, was able to be a parent yeah. and run a business flexibly um and so that's been a huge benefit but for me yeah i yeah you, look you do have to, if you're working from home you do have to have some boundaries you do have to understand what are your work hours and what are the times that you're doing other things um yeah but uh, because i work flexibly because i do have children yeah i mean sometimes i answer emails at midnight sometimes i do mm. a bit of work yeah. in the evening sometimes because maybe i took a few hours out during the day you know so so i do work that way and technology sort of allows us to do that but you do have to be careful i mean there are times when you know, I shouldn't be answering an email at midnight or mm. <laughs> looking at yeah. you know, something on LinkedIn at one o'clock in the morning. Really, I should just be going to sleep. <laughs> so um, uh, I think you have to be careful as well. I think you have to set the boundaries. You have to be careful. You have to make sure you stay healthy. You have to make sure you exercise, all of those good things. Um, but I think the flexibility for me is 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 what makes it great. And 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 for my team as well yeah now i think this is something that um me here sort of touched on earlier on but um do you have you ever felt that there's pressure from organizations or or perhaps organizations that you've worked with you've got got this vibe that it's more of a marketing tool um especially in a, a more forward society of okay we are including people look at us being inclusive, working with a company such as employability. Um, have you ever felt that and, and perhaps that it's more just to fill a quota in inverted commas? Yeah, so look, you know, we've been going a long time and we've certainly been approached by companies or by organisations who um, want a quick fix or want to be seen to yeah. be doing something different. Um, and that can sometimes be by a company contacting us saying, well, can we just advertise some roles on your website? Um, which we're never very keen to do because whilst it's easy money actually <laughs> for us, um, it means that we have to be certain that if we're letting a company do that, that, that they actually are inclusive because by being on our website, we are, it, it's a bit like an endorsement. And so usually we discourage a company from doing that because uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to know what to do if somebody with a disability applies to them it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be making the right adjustments completely so tab we've, we've spoken about how sometimes you've had this pressure from companies perhaps looking to just give the impression of of being inclusive in the workplace um, how do you actually respond to this? Like when you mentioned companies are just looking to sort of post on the website, um, what, what is your response to, to these requests as such? So usually what I'll say to them is that we need to, we need to maybe audit a process or we need to actually check 
what they're doing in terms of offering adjustments in the right way. Um, and, and, and then we've also worked with co companies, not, not many, I have to say, I'm really pleased to say, but we have occasionally worked with companies where they want to pay us to work with them, uh, to advise them, to um, be their consultants. But when it comes to it, they don't really want to do anything differently. And if that's the case, then I would rather not work with that organization. There's certainly been situations where I've walked away from business because that's not the sort of organization we want to work with. Um, there's no point. Yeah, our business model is that of a management consultancy, though what we do results in recruitment. The rest of our business is very much like a management consultancy. And, and you know, the purpose of engaging us is to actually um, affect change. And if you're not going to be prepared to make that change, take on the advice, then you know, I'm not interested in actually having that organization as a client. So the companies that we do work with are ones who, they haven't got it all right. They're still on a journey, but they're certainly ones who are making the effort to get this right. And that's really what, what, what I'm interested in doing is actually assisting those companies. Just a question about the flip side to that. So how receptive have you found students with disabilities to be to your services and kind of what you've been able to provide? Because I know some a lot of there might be a lot of um groups or organizations that claim to help but mm. just like jed mentions it can be a lot of time a bit of a publicity stunt so how receptive have the students you've kind of come in contact been with to your service so i think the biggest challenge that we have is that still even though we've been going you know for 14 years and um we have links with amazing societies societies like yours with lots of big universities and their career services and so on and we do, you know, in pre-COVID times, we, we would do lots of events on campus and so on. But still, we know that we uh, only a fraction of students know about our existence. You know, we offer a free service to students. It's a no-brainer. If you have a condition, why wouldn't you just take the free service and get all the advice and guidance and increase your chances? But there are so many students who either aren't aware of our services or much like other people think of disability, don't think that their particular condition is a disability. So often when we were at recruitment fairs at universities on campus and so on, people would come up to us and something might come up to us and say, but I only have dyslexia. That's not really a disability, is it? And we'd say, well, yeah, it is actually. <laughs> so yes, you can register with us. Um, so there's that element of it. And then I think the other element of it is that, uh, there were, people are worried about self-identifying themselves or about telling a company that might need some adjustments or support because um, they're worried that a company's going to think they're not good enough. They're worried that a company's going to think that they don't have the right skill set. And so we know that the companies that we work with certainly don't think that, and it's not about that. It's about making sure you have the right adjustments to give you that level playing field. And that's all it's about. So it's not about telling a company what your disability is. It's not about telling a company how your disability impacts you. It's just about asking for the adjustments. And Equality Act Section 60 actually enables you to do that because that prohibits companies asking you if you have a disability or what your disability is or any details about your disability. So in fact, all it's about is just what adjustments do you need? And then, you know what, if you want to talk about your disability, if you're comfortable to do that, then that's a personal choice. But but I think privacy for some people is really important. And so just tell a company what adjustments you need. I think that's a, a nice sort of step into our next topic, actually, in talking about neurodiverse individuals. 
um, rather than the the business side of it as such. And I'd actually like to to hand this over to Tim to take more of a, a lead on this section mm. of the podcast. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, I have dyslexia and dyspraxia. So I am a neurodiverse individual, which is how I know Tab. So firstly, I'm just I'm interested. Why do you think a organisation should aim to create a workforce and recruitment process which is inclusive for neurodiverse individuals? Because I think an organisation, if I was running a business, and I do run a business, <laughs> you know, an organisation, a company should be looking for the best person out there for the roles that they're trying to fill. And by, so I'll answer that in reverse almost, by not looking at somebody with a neurodiverse condition or any other condition, you're limiting the pool of people you could be selecting from. So I think the reason to do that is one, that make sure you are looking at the broadest talent pool out there. I think the other reason is that difference brings creativity. Uh, it's been proven in lots of, you know, there's been lots of work done on this, the business case for having a diverse workforce, uh, not having people who will think in the same way, who will behave in the same way, uh, brings creativity and diversity in thinking. So I think that's really important. And all of this impacts your bottom line, your profit margin. So I think uh, the business case for hiring people who aren't like everybody else is pretty strong. Um, and and look for the best person out there. It might happen to be somebody who has a neurodiverse condition or any other condition. Hmm. So recently there's been a bit of discussion. It's been a lot more focused in academic circles about whether employing neurodiverse individuals can help provide a strategic competitive advantage for a company. Would you say that neurodiverse cognitive disadvantages can lead to strengths in other cognitive departments which can help the company achieve their goals? I mean, possibly, like, there's been, I know there's been a lot of discussion about this. I've read several papers on this. Um, Maybe, maybe, maybe if you have a particular condition. I know when I've spoken to you before, Tim, that you've said to me, I think you defined it as seeing the forest rather than the trees. I haven't got that wrong. Uh, so, so the bigger picture yeah. in a sense, right? Um, but, um, and for many people on the autistic spectrum, they might be really good at coding. Um, I think the tricky part of that, and, and that may be the case, and that can be the case for anybody, right? But I think, but I think the tricky part of that is that companies have started to, or some companies, not all companies or people, they start to be pigeonholed into only certain types of roles that are open to them. So companies then go, oh, we have an opening for somebody in uh, uh, you know, data structuring or coding, and let's have an autism program for somebody to to join the tech team. Okay, great, that's great. But what about somebody with autism who might want to join marketing or sales or another function? So I'm really keen that there aren't limitations placed on people because people are focused on strengths only being in certain areas, people with certain types of conditions. I think it's really important that companies do everything they can to open up every opportunity they have for people with neurodiverse or any other condition. And actually, if you do that properly, if you make your processes equitable and fair, um, that, that people can get through, if you remove those barriers, if you have the right attitudes, if you put the right adjustments in place, then there's no reason why people can't apply to any sort of role, irrespective of condition that they might have. 
Um, and so I think that's that for me is really, really important. Let's stop pigeonholing people. Let's stop making assumptions about people's preferences. Let the person choose what sort of role they want to apply to. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree because I think sometimes having a weakness in one area may mean that you work harder at it, which then turns it into a strength, which I think that argument sometimes disregards. I was going to say for sure. And you know what? You know what? If you're, if you, if you're talking about competencies, which, you know, all that good stuff that interviewers ask you about or companies ask you about on application forms or in, in an interview, if you're talking about competencies, for sure. If your uh, condition or your disability has meant that you can show resilience or has meant that you can show competency in a particular, in another way. And you can use that as an example for sure. Use it. I mean, I absolutely use whatever you've got your disposable to show you demonstrate your competencies. And I think for some people, you're right. I think it, it does strengthen skills perhaps in certain areas, but I think the bit that I think people need to be really, really careful with is uh, assumptions about because you have this, therefore you're suited to this. I think yeah, that that needs. I think we have to be very careful with that sort of discussion and argument. And then just to go back a little bit, we were talking earlier, and I think about sort of uh, why should companies have people and and what challenges students might find or university students might find in making applications. The other really big piece that I think it's worth just highlighting is that so many of the students that we talk to that we meet um have what i would call imposter syndrome and i think it's a really important thing to talk about because so many people feel or believe that they're not quite good enough because they have a particular condition or a disability or neurodiverse condition and actually and and so what they end up doing is not asking for the adjustments going through a process and then not getting through but you know you might you're at a great university you've done really well so what I'd say to students is really start believing in your skills. You know, if you're passionate about something, if you're passionate about an area, if you think you have the right skill set, it's really important that you get the adjustments you need to go through that process so that you give yourself the best possible chance. Otherwise, in a sense, you're almost discriminating against yourself. So that, and then the other point I just wanted to make really quickly, which I think is important as well, is that when we talk to companies about adjustments, when we talk to companies about changing the process and we talk to companies about doing something slightly differently it's never about lowering the bar so yeah this isn't about give somebody a chance because they've got a disability this is about no give the best person the role but there might be somebody here for whom you to make some adjustments to be able to demonstrate their abilities so it's never about lowering the bar um quick question then playing a sort of dev cool, devil's advocate as such um in a climate such as today this current climate where where resources are low companies are indeed struggling do you think that you, you said that the student sort of side of it doesn't seem to have been affected but those further on in their careers now do you think where perhaps arrangements are required certain accessibilities are required companies which are already struggling for resources in in a crisis in a pandemic are less inclined to to help out and obviously won't um won't give the exact reasoning for it the, the companies make up all sorts of reasons as to why they won't hire someone but do you think that situations such as these can affect the employability rates of people um both physically disabled and neurodiverse so um 
you're quite right, doesn't seem to have impacted the student graduate market very much. Um, and I think that's because there's, there's this kind of longer lead times, so, you know, most big organizations recruit for an internship and then majority, you know, a large portion of those convert to the graduate program. And so, yeah, there's a cycle, if you like. Um, um, well, they'd be breaking the law. <laughs> okay, so we have the law in place for a reason. There's the Equality Act, uh, discrimination, would be breaking the law. So I think that, um, I don't think it's something that companies are going to be doing openly. I would hope it's not something they're going to be doing anyway, but companies have to be very, very careful. Look, if, if, you, if you're making a number of redundancies because your business is suffering and you have legitimate reason to make redundancies, then you have to go through a due process in order to do that. Um, and if you don't follow that due process and you decide to do that on the basis of some other grounds, uh then that's discriminatory and of course that can be challenged um so i think there's that aspect of it so i think i'm sure reputable companies will not be risking that um neither because it's moral nor because it's legal um and 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 then secondly i think that you know adjustments to help people to perform to their best ability don't always have to be that complicated or costly and often aren't in fact so i think it's much more about changing mindset generally and i don't think that's any different now than before the pandemic so i think and in fact as i was saying earlier i think for many many companies <clears throat> they've realized that in fact there are some really easy changes that you can make to accommodate difference uh, or or to make things easier for somebody to demonstrate their abilities and still the other thing that hasn't changed is you want the best person for the job. You might already as a company have many people working for you who have a neurodiverse condition, who have a disability, which may not be visible. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so if you don't focus on creating that inclusive culture, that one of belonging where somebody feels safe to come forward and ask for the adjustments, then you're probably not getting the best return on investment of your staff. So I think on that front, nothing really changes. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. It's, that's fantastic. I was playing, a, as I say, devil's advocate because unfortunately we do know that, especially in previous years, things like that do still go on and in more more um, situations than just to do with disability and neurodiversity as well. So just uh, interesting to get your, your thoughts on that. So we hope we've got some, some future leaders um, listening to this podcast. What advice would you give to them about setting up an organization so that the culture and processes are inclusive for neurodiverse individuals? Um, so I think that um, in terms of having an inclusive culture, I think be prepared to enable people to work in a style that suits them. Um, I, think, I think be prepared to provide, and I think, you know, look, it's difficult when you're small as well because things uh, adjustments particularly if they're costly adjustments which as i said before many aren't but if they are um certain adjustments are harder for a small business to be able to make just financially so on that note there are things like access to work a pot of money that's available for companies to be able to use that can pay up to 100 percent of adjustment costs i think it's quite important for small businesses to know about that um, but 
I think be prepared to do things differently. Be, be prepared to make the right adjustments. So many of adjust, so many adjustments are actually about attitudinal, attitudinal change. So how do you actually, um, you know, not judge somebody because they have to go to a therapy appointment, or how do you not judge somebody because they might need extra thinking time, particularly when they're new to a role? Those sorts of things. Um, and I think the focus is always have the best person. For the role irrespective of a condition because usually the adjustments back condition are pretty easy to make now you've talked about sort of changing the the perception um which we all know with many things it's it's more about how people are perceived rather than their, how they actually act um what do you see as as the future as such how will society view and include neurodiverse individuals people with disabilities and um, I think you've already talked about, but what sort of message would you give to those individuals as well going into the workplace in the future? So um, I think the message to companies and individuals is pretty much the same. So message particularly to individuals is don't be apologetic for what you need, for the adjustments and the support that you need. It's your right to have it. It's your right to have the level playing field and make sure you get what you need to enable you to perform as well as you can. So I think that's what I'd say to individuals. And to companies, I'd say, I, I think I said this at the beginning, you know, the world is diverse. Um, inclusion isn't a nice have, it's a must have, it's an imperative. Um, and creating that culture of belonging is really good for business. So, you know, if you want the best from your employees, if you want to get the best talent out there, then do the things that enable you to achieve that. And what we're saying to companies now is, you know what, this is for, for us, I said this is part of the next generation inclusive thinking movement for us in a sense where we want companies, people of influence, people faster, your, you know, your future leaders, as, as you mentioned, lend your voice, lend your weight behind this to ensure that we live in, in an inclusive society and in an inclusive world. Brilliant. Um, and now for, for those listening, Obviously, uh, we've said it before on this podcast, there's, there's going to be a lot of our age group listening. Hopefully, anyway, fingers crossed. Um, employability, your company, opportunities at the company and for people looking to go into graduate schemes, what, what do you offer? So the process is you go onto our website, um, www.employ-ability.org.uk. You go onto our website, you register. Once you've registered, you have... We support services. You can apply to companies, roles through us for internships, graduate programs. You can attend Insight Days. Um, you can apply for Google scholarships. You know, all of that, that sort of good stuff. You can apply. You can get support from us in that application. We can advise you on the adjustments you might need because you might have adjustments at university, but often uh, the adjustments you've going through the recruitment process or in the workplace may be different from that which you've received at university. And sometimes you might not know what you can get access to. But talk to us about it because we do know, we understand the recruitment process, we know about the sector you're going into, and we understand what sort of adjustments might be available to you. So I think, yeah, that that's those are all sort of free services. In terms of um, applications, when you apply through us, it's you're applying for the exact same roles as anybody else if you were to apply directly. But if you apply through us, you do it with the support, with the adjustments. Your application will get sent to the company and then you'll go through this exact same process as anybody else, except for you have the adjustments in place that you might need. So 
we work with, um, I mentioned Google, we work with Amazon, we work with Bloomberg, with Goldman Sachs, with JP Morgan, with the FCA and a whole host of others, Discovery Channel, Bird and Bird, a whole host of others. So um, it, it, a, a number of organizations, the key sectors that we specialize in are finance and banking, tech and law. Um, because of the sort of synergy between those sectors and because people from in, within my team have are actually professionals from within those sectors. Excellent. So they're the I ones mean, we know very well. It's fantastic to know that that sort of that guidance, that support system is out there for, for, for loads of people that will, will be needing it going into the future. Um, now, Tim gets excited about this last one. He has a hell of a last <laughs> question that we like to ask everyone who comes onto this podcast. So go for it, Tim. So without, without sounding, without sounding, complimenting you too much, you're a very, <laughs> you're a very successful individual. Am I right in thinking you, you won the Asian Women of the Year award? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I did. That was a few years ago though, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> um, so be, being a successful individual and being around other successful individuals, from your experience, are there any specific traits or behaviors? which help um, distinguish these people from non-successful people? Um, gosh, that's a toughie right at the end, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think uh, you, look, you have to be dedicated, okay? I think you have to be really passionate about what you do. For me, running employability, getting out of bed every morning to run employability isn't a chore. It's, some, it's not something that I think, oh, God, I'm going to do that job again. I, you know, I love what I do. Maybe everybody says that. I don't know, but I do mean it. <laughs> I love yeah. what I, I love what I do. I'm really excited by what I do. You know, whether I'm talking to a student and trying to empower them, another big word we're using a lot these days, employability. Whether I'm trying, we're trying to empower them, or whether we're talking to a company and trying to empower them. Um, for me, it's about creating change. Uh, it's about creating opportunity, and it's about creating giving people the opportunity to, 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 to do the best that they can do. So I'm really passionate about that. And for me, you know, if you're talking about what makes people successful, I think if you can find something that you're super passionate about that really brings out that passion in you, and maybe you haven't found that thing yet, but maybe you get involved in something and then you find it. So for me, I almost you know, found this passion by default, actually, as it happens. Um, and I said to you, I, but, you know, I sort of applied for this job at this charity and I didn't know much about disability. Actually, if I think back, I did. I had, you know, my nephew who had a visual impairment. My sister was schizophrenic. My father was on the autistic spectrum. But I hadn't really thought of these things as disability. You know, I hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me. So sometimes it's just about finding that match of it could be your experience. It could be your background. It could be something you just feel passionately about. But I think if you can find a business, find something to do that, you're really passionate about and you can make that a success as a business then then well that's great tab thank you so much for coming on it's been fantastic having you on the uh, channel so thanks for taking the time to speak to us thank you so very much it's been a pleasure to speak to you all and uh yeah wish you all the very best of luck i'm sure you'll all be applying for these roles as well at some point so wish you the very best of luck and real pleasure to speak to you today thank you thanks a lot um, and for everyone listening thanks. at home thank you for joining us yet again in the meeting room um i hope you're all doing okay and we will speak to you next week see you in a bit guys